Would you stand with me as we read from the Gospel of Luke? We're going to start in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll read uh, through, through verse 4 right now, but we're going to continue on a little bit further as we get into this wonderful, wonderful book. But let's take a look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke writes this, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Heavenly Father, we give to you uh, this time in your Word. We give to you this new uh, series in your Word as we uh, walk through the Gospel of Luke. We're excited and hopeful for this time in your Word. We're asking you by your Holy Spirit to show us things that we've never seen before and to also show us things that we've read a thousand times and yet never fully appreciated or understood or even perhaps applied to our life. We're asking you to transform us as a result of this time in your word. Bless us as we walk through this wonderful gospel. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The Gospel of Luke. I want to give you um, just briefly a a, a quick run-through of some of the background of this book so that you can uh, fully appreciate it as we begin to walk through it step by step. The Gospel of Luke. Who was its author? Well, Luke is authored by its namesake, uh, really a disciple of uh, Jesus Christ, though not uh, a contemporary of Jesus, but Luke was a follower of Jesus Christ. Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. So Paul wrote so much of the New Testament, uh, just many, many letters in which were written to various churches throughout Asia Minor and all of the, uh, the ancient uh, Near East. And Luke was one of those companions who walked and talked and ministered right alongside the Apostle Paul in all of those years of ministry. They likely met in the town of Antioch, north of uh, Jerusalem quite a bit, uh, which was likely Luke's hometown, according to church tradition. Therefore, Luke was almost uh, surely a Gentile, uh, being uh, hailing from Syria or uh, Antioch of Syria. Uh, He was a physician, by trade, a doctor. So those of you uh, in the medical uh, fields will uh, take note of some of the many instances in which Luke uses medicinal terms or, or shows instances in which Jesus interacts with those who are sick and who are infirmed. He wrote his gospel sometime in, in the 50s AD. Some say early, some say late. Really, it's, it's not of great consequence precisely when it was written. But then later on in the early, ni- uh, early 60s, A.D., Luke also wrote his second volume. You and I know it as the book of Acts. So together, Luke and Acts, or Luke-Acts as as many scholars uh, term them together, Luke-Acts 
is a two-volume set that combined to represent 27% of the New Testament. Over a quarter of the New Testament is represented by Luke's hand. And Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is actually the longest book of the, of the New Testament. As a physician, and those of you who are doctors and in the medical field know all too well, uh, those in medicine have to study. They have to do a great research. And Luke was known for his research. He never walked with Jesus personally, so instead he sought to confirm the stories and the experiences of those who knew Jesus firsthand. And he did this with great care. To whom did he write? It says in verse 3 that Luke, and actually uh, the Acts of the Apostles, was written to an individual known as Theophilus. Theophilus. Verse 3, it says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, a Greek name, meaning God, Theos, and then lover, Phileo or Phyllis, right there, Theophilus, a lover of God. A man who was a lover of God, a Gentile God-fearer, we might say. It's also said of Theophilus that, uh, by Luke that he was the most excellent Theophilus, indicating that Theophilus was a man of high standing of some kind. Perhaps a governing official, perhaps a wealthy businessman, perhaps a personal benefactor of Luke's work. He may have been the publisher of Luke's writings. We don't know for sure. Whomever he was, though, Theophilus was uh, a representation of the kind of people that Luke was aiming for, in part. He wanted to write to the Gentiles. He wanted to write to the Greeks, to the God-fearers, to the God-lovers of the Gentile world. He wanted Theophilus and those like him to know the story of Jesus and to know it was true and worthy of full and undivided attention. Verse 4, and on your outline, I want you to write down this term. Luke says his purpose. He says that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Write down the word certainty there on your outline. He says, this is my purpose, Theophilus, that you would know the certainty or the assurance, the truthfulness, the veracity of those things in which you were instructed about Jesus Christ. Tom Constable writes on your outline, the Christian faith does not require believing things that are contrary to facts, but believing things that are true. Luke wrote his introduction to assure his readers that there was a factual basis for their faith. And James Van Dyne writes, Luke is writing to assure Theophilus that the things believed by Christians have a historically and verifiable source, namely, eyewitnesses to the words and actions of Jesus Himself. That's really one of the key purposes of the Gospel of Luke. That Luke wrote to Theophilus that he might be assured of the things said of Jesus Christ. But, and this is a big but, but Luke is not merely interested in confirming the factual authenticity of Jesus' life and message. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, 
is not merely an apologetic or a defense of the Christian faith. It is that, but it is not merely that. What Luke is most concerned with is also showing us that Jesus Christ is the chief expression of what it means to live as God intended. Luke will frequently say in his Gospel that Jesus was the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And by that, Luke will be affirming as loud as he can possibly say that Jesus is very much like us in that He is human and that He lived the human life and that He walked and talked and endeavored through this life as you and I do as human beings, that He was the Son of Man, that He was like us, but also that Jesus Christ was very much unlike us in that as the Son of Man, He lived life in such a way that was wholly distinct from the way you and I often live it. That He lived life as it was meant to be lived. That He lived life as a human being was meant to experience humanity. Luke emphasized Jesus' humanness. That in one sense, Jesus is like us. He's human. But in another sense, Jesus is very much different from us in that He displayed a kind of human experience that was unlike any other. For Luke, Jesus redefined what it means to be human and to live on this earth. And that's going to be a recurring theme throughout this Gospel. On your outline, one of the, the, maybe the, the key themes that Tom and I, as we walk through this Gospel with you, will be saying over and over again is this, that, that Jesus is trying to communicate, Luke is trying to communicate to us through the life of Christ, the Son of Man, that life is to be redefined. That on your outline, that every moment is to be understood as a kingdom moment. Life redefined. Every moment, a kingdom moment. Write that down. Sermon series theme. Life redefined. Every moment is a kingdom moment. And we shall see throughout this Gospel and in many ways today that the interruptions, the things that we thought were distractions, the things that that we thought we were being steady and faithful and good and doing what God asked of us, but then in the end, all of a sudden, we, we, we miss out on those kingdom moments that are right before our very eyes. Jesus says, don't miss one of them. And Luke endeavors to show us the story of Jesus that we might rethink what it means to live the human life, to look differently at every moment of our day. As I said, the purpose of this series is not to cover every single verse of Luke. So we will not be here for two and a half years, which it would probably take if we did cover every verse. But instead, our purpose is to draw out select vignettes from this Gospel that highlight Luke's message that to live as Jesus lived means to completely redefine our lives and look upon each moment of our day differently. Our first vignette 
is actually not about Jesus at all. Well, at least on the surface. But it's about the experience of Jesus' aunt and uncle. Look at Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. We're going to take it bit by bit. Luke 1, beginning in verse 5. One of the wonderful stories from the infancy narrative. A story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Or in some of your versions, you'll see Zechariah. I just want to make the point that I'm not mispronouncing and I'm reading from the New King James, which translates it Zechariah. Um, some, some Bible translations also translate it Zechariah. It's based on different Greek texts that had a, a slight uh, emendation to the end of his name. Not a big deal. So whether I'm saying Zechariah or Zechariah, we're still talking about this same individual uh, who was uh, a relative of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take a look at verse 5. There was... In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was, that while Zacharias was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, that his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. A few things to highlight in these opening verses. First, the issue of barrenness or, or childlessness. It says in verse 7 that Zacharias and Elizabeth had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Uh, You've heard it said before, but I'll I'll reiterate for those who may not have known it, that in the first century, uh, barrenness um, was a sign of, well, really was um, an issue of embarrassment and shame uh, for a family in first century uh, Israel. Uh, to be barren was to be a family, and, and in particular, a, a woman who did not it was not experiencing the full blessing of God in the eyes of the culture. Barrenness, childlessness, was was an embarrassment to the family. Uh, it was also culturally associated uh, with sin. There were some that would say, "Well, they they have not had a child, or perhaps they have not had a son because there is sin." in the family because there is something that's impeded the blessing of God. It was hard to be barren in the first century. Um, It's hard today, but it was especially hard then. But Luke, the writer of this Gospel, he quickly dispels the reason for Elizabeth's barrenness. Look at verse 6. Jump back just a second to verse 6. It says that they both were righteous before God, walking in all the commandments, commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Luke says they were good. They were good people. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they were righteous. They followed God. They heeded God's commandments. They sought to live honorably. We might liken them to you know, faithful churchgoers. They sat in the pew for years and years and years, living faithfully and humbly. 
They never strayed from the faith. They were always there, eager to help and to serve their community. They were an example to all. Luke dispels of the notion that Elizabeth's barrenness was somehow associated with their family's sin. He says, nope, that wasn't the reason. But still, they were well advanced in years, and the prospects of having a child seemed very dim. That's the issue of barrenness. Secondly, there's an issue of priestly service on your outline at the bottom. It says that Zacharias was a priest. Verse 5, Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. I'm indebted to uh, Tom Constable for uh, these next points, a wonderful scholar. Um, he, he did some great research on uh, what it meant to be of the division of Abijah or to be a priest of the division of such and such. And he found out a few interesting points. I want to point these out to you. That David, King David, had divided the Levitical priests into 24 divisions. Write that down, 24 divisions. In other words, the priests which in the Old Testament were those of the, of the tribe of, of Levi, the Levitical priesthood, okay? The, 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 the individual set aside for work in the temple, David, King David, in his day and age, he took that, that tribe of Israel, the Levites, and he divided them into 24 separate divisions. In accordance, uh, you can read the stories there in First and Second Chronicles. I've listed um, the text, the appropriate text. And that each division of the priesthood, that each um, grouping of priests within each division, they serve for one full week, two times per year. They would serve once at the first half of the year for one full week, and once in the second half of, of the year for one full week. They serve once per year, two times, uh, one full week per year, two times... Uh, <laughs> They serve one full week, two times per year. I can say it the third time correctly. All the divisions, however, would also serve during the major feasts. That is to say, when there was great ho uh, holidays and celebrations, the major festivals of Israel, uh, like the, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would all come together and participate, all 24 divisions. And there were um, hundreds and even thousands of priests in every division such that when all 24 divisions came together you would be looking at upwards of anywhere from 15 to 25,000 people that would be gathered as priests before the Lord in Jerusalem significant number of people a significant number of people not all priests lived in Jerusalem in fact most lived elsewhere it is said in Luke 1 that Zacharias and Elizabeth lived in a small town in the hill country of Judea. It says that later on in the first chapter. They lived in a small town in the hill country of Judea, uh, quite, a, quite a ways from Jerusalem. There, Zacharias would have likely had another job in a regular Jewish life. But on this particular priestly trip to Jerusalem, something remarkable happened. Look at verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, we might read verse 8 and 9 and we might just kind of 
pass right by it, right? It's very, very easy to pass on by. Okay, he, he came to Jerusalem, he did his service, and uh, let's, okay, what, what else is going on in the story? But a, a first century Jewish eye would have stopped immediately upon reading what Luke had written in verses 8 and 9. They would have stopped and recognized that something significant had just happened. And so we need to stop and recognize what is the significance of this burning of incense in the temple. It says again in verse 8, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense. Leon Morris, on the back of your outline, writes this. He says, there were many priests and not enough sacred duties for them all, so lots were cast to see who would perform each function. The offering of incense was regarded as a great privilege. A priest could not offer incense more than once in his entire lifetime. And some priests never did receive the privilege. Thus the time when Zechariah offered the incense was the most important moment in his whole life. Read that last part again. The most important moment in his whole life. Life. I've got a lot of significant moments in my life, right? Uh, you know, when the Oakland A's won the 1989 World Series. I know for all of you, that was a significant moment. Actually, you're probably thinking of the year before when the Dodgers beat my Oakland A's. That was an insignificant moment in my book. Another significant moment, my wedding day was a significant moment. The birth of my children, each of which were unbelievably important moments to me. Those are, the, those are the most important moments of my life. And I know them instinctively. Zacharias, as they cast lots, the priests, as they literally, you know, drew straws, so to speak, in hopes of who would gain this wonderful privilege, he was the one upon whom the lot fell to burn incense. It was a tremendous, tremendous moment in his life. One of the greatest moments of his life. The incense symbolizing really prayer as the smoke and aroma was lifted up in the temple, it served as a symbol of the prayers that were being lifted up to God. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice, the psalmist writes. Zacharias is experiencing, though we would not have known it with a casual 21st century eye, but he is experiencing one of the greatest moments of his life. And it's about to get a whole lot better. Because all of a sudden, the greatest moment of his life gets interrupted. Look at verse 11. Then an angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, 
and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him, capital H, meaning Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. One important point about Zacharias uh, is his name. It means Yahweh remembers. God remembers. And indeed, at the greatest pinnacle moment of Zacharias' life, God remembers. Verse 13, An angel appears to him and says to Zacharias, Your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. But not just any son. Zacharias had prayed for a son, no doubt. But God gave him a prophet. It says in verse 14 that many will rejoice at this prophet's birth. That he'll be great, according to verse 15, great in the sight of the Lord. That he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. In other words, that he will be uh, of, the, of the kind who takes the vow of the Nazarite as spoken of in the book of Numbers. He'll be the kind of prophet who takes the vow of the Nazarite. That is to say that is wholly and completely and utterly devoted to the Lord. That he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, that he'll turn many hearts to God. Verse 17, that he'll even go before the Messiah in the power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord. Zacharias prayed for a son and God gave him a prophet. God exceeded his expectations. We might even say in one sense that Zacharias, uh, maybe in the, in the eyes of God, that he wasn't praying big enough, that he wasn't asking enough of God. His petition to God was, was, was significant in, from his human standpoint. It was significant in the sense that he had no child, he had no son, but in the eyes of God it was too trite, too commonplace, too ordinary. Zacharias wanted a son. God said, not just a son. One of the greatest of all the sons of man. I'm going to give you a prophet. You're going to call him John. He's going to go as a forerunner, a one who precedes my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you John the Baptist. I wonder if God... Uh, sometimes delays answering our prayers because we ask Him for that which is too common and not that which is supernatural. Perhaps we ask Him for things that, well, even if they were to occur, uh, we, we'd be hard-pressed to know if that prayer was answered by God or if it was merely a, a natural occurrence of life. Zacharias wanted a son. God gave him a prophet. Zacharias thought he was asking for something significant. God said, not big enough. I'm going to give you the, one of the greatest prophets. Your son is going to be a forerunner of Messiah. Do we ask God for enough? I wonder that as I was reading this uh, experience of Zacharias. I, I think I'll use the example of when someone's sick 
And I use this example because I know in my heart this was an example I've struggled with for years. When someone is sick, what's your prayer? Is your prayer, oh God, um, would you, um, by the work of human medicine and by the work of, of human physicians, by the doctor's hand, Lord, would you give that doctor wisdom to treat and to help the person who is sick? Or is your prayer, God, would you heal them? God, would you take this away? God, would you be the great physician as you are termed in Scripture? To be sure, it's fine to pray for both. Both prayers are important, whether we're asking God to heal by means of human medicine or the human physician or by the hand of man. And of course, the prayer that God would act divinely to instantaneously, by His hand, by His word, heal. Both prayers are valid. Both prayers are important. But I know in my own life, earlier in my own life, it was the prayer for medicinal and doctoral assistance that was the focus of my prayer because I didn't want to ask for healing because I was afraid that that was asking too much. And so when someone got cancer, I would pray that the chemotherapy would work. When someone um, you know, was terminally ill, I would ask that God provide some miracle drug that they might be healed. And I was afraid to ask earlier on in my life, God, no, would you just heal them? Would you just say the word and take it away? I was afraid to ask in that second manner because... I was afraid it was a little too much to ask for. I was afraid that I might be disappointed if my petition went unanswered. Prayers that exclude the supernatural act of God are prayers that aren't being lifted high enough. It's as if God was saying to Zacharias, expect more from me. Expect more from me. Zacharias prayed for a son, but God gave him a prophet. Perhaps God is also saying to you, expect more from me. I want you to ask me. Ask me for the impossible. I want you to pray to me for divine healing for that friend or family member who is deeply ill. I want you to pray in faith for the salvation of that one person who everyone says, oh, they'll never believe. I want you to pray in faith for the impossible and with expectation that God will do it. Zacharias, good man that he was, good man that he was, church-going man that he was, faithful man that he was. I don't know. When push came to shove, I don't know if Zacharias had enough faith that God would answer his prayer. And the evidence of that is verse 18. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? From an old man. And my wife is well advanced in years. Zechariah, in verse 18, here doubts the angel's proclamation. He says, how shall I know this? I know uh, it's uh, once in a lifetime honor 
that I am here burning incense in the temple of God. I know that uh, you're the first angel to ever appear to a man in the temple of God. I know that you've miraculously known the content of my prayer for a son. I, I know all of that. But how can I know your word is true? I need a sign. Those other signs, while impressive, are not quite good enough for me. We laugh. And yet, how easy, how easy it is for the slow, steady, faithful Christian man or woman for that one who sat in the pew year after year, how easy it is for that Christian to be sluggish, to embrace the moment when God wants to shake them to the very core with an outpouring of His Spirit and grace. We get comfortable in our faith. We get relaxed. We're faithful, but sometimes morose, a bit lethargic, or even pessimistic. We say, oh, the world, it's, it's running its course. It's downward spiral. There's not much I can do about it, but just sit back and wait for the Lord. God says, wake up. Wake up. Blessing awaits those who wait with hope and expectation, but the sluggish of heart will miss out on opportunity to rise up and participate in these kingdom moments. Zacharias, a faithful man, and yet missed it when God wanted to do something great right in front of him. Verse 19, And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to you and, uh, sent to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, verse 20, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. Verse 21, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And so he beckoned to them. But he remained speechless. Zacharias was slow to believe. And so he was temporarily stricken with muteness, with the inability to speak, a condition that lasted up until a few days past the birth of his son, John. To be sure, he could make motions with his hands. He could write. Later on, he would ask for a tablet upon which to write his son's name. But Zacharias could not communicate in full his experience in the temple. He could only do so in a stunted manner, in a bifurcated manner, one that, that frustrated him. He missed out on full potential and joy it would have been to speak with his own tongue the wonderful prophecy that we would be fulfilled in his own family, that his son would be the forerunner of Messiah. Instead, fear and doubt limited his ability to participate in God's kingdom work. Fear and doubt limited 
Zacharias' ability to participate in God's kingdom work. Are you fearful? Are you doubtful? Do your prayers shrink back? Do your petitions to God fall short because you want something manageable? Something that won't disappoint too much if it doesn't happen? I say to you that your fear and your doubt is actually what's crippling your walk with the Lord. God's calling you to be a man or woman of expectant faith. Not of doubt, not of fear. Zacharias, he was faithful, but he was unexpectant. Title of this message, Are We Faithful But Unexpectant? That's not what God's asking. That's not enough. That's not enough. To be faithful and yet unexpectant is to have a kind of walk with the Lord that is second rate. That is missing out on full potential. It's not enough to just sit there week after week to say the right things, to participate, to serve, to minister, to be encouraging, and yet to expect very little of God. Zacharias' story tells us that's not enough. Nevertheless, the prophetic word of the angel was not dependent upon human assent. The angel's word would come to pass regardless of Zechariah's response. Take a look at verse 23. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that Zechariah departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived... And she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when He looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. When Zacharias' week of temple service was complete, he went home with his wife. And they conceived. Verse 24 says that she hid herself five months. Why? It's not said but it's likely because she truly, truly needed time to ready herself, to prepare her heart for the coming onslaught of questions and wonder that would come from so many of her friends and family. You're pregnant? How old are you? Wait, how did this happen? He'll be what? A prophet? How do you know these things? And how old are you again? But the Lord would bless Elizabeth and He would shield her heart. She knew that this was a gift. Verse 25 says that she exclaims, The Lord's dealt with me in the days when He looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. She knew that the birth of her son, John the Baptist, would signify a taking away of her reproach as a once barren woman. God was going to bless Zacharias and Elizabeth. He was determined to bless them, even in the face of a faithful man's unbelief. And I believe that God is determined to bless us too. 
Like an earthly parent desires to bless and give gifts to their children, especially at this time of year. We, moms and dads, we want to, to bless our kids with great gifts. You've got ten more days to figure it out. We want to get them that wonderful, wonderful gift that will just make them in awe. I'm looking forward to my son seeing that special gift under the tree. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father wants to bless us. He's determined to bless us and to give us gifts that far exceed our expectations and hopes. He wants to give us those gifts regardless of whether or not we'll trust Him in that great kingdom moment. Zacharias fell short. But God was determined to bless him nonetheless. The question for us is, will we expect great things from God? Will we be ready, faithful man or woman, to embrace those kingdom moments when God does the unthinkable before you? Is your faith big enough to handle it? And not just handle it, but to expect it, to anticipate it, to embrace it? Or will you, like Zacharias, be a steady, faithful Christian but one who never asks for the impossible. One who always has a faith that is just a little limited. Who puts restraint on what God can do. I want to be the mighty expectant one. Let's redefine what we believe God can do. Let's be ready for those great kingdom moments and petition God for them that we might rightly say in accordance with the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The content of that prayer as prescribed by Jesus of us to pray, the content of that prayer is that we would say, God, bring the glories of heaven into my life on earth. Bring the glories of your kingdom down here in front of me to this illness, to this state in which I lack provision, to this moment in which I am depressed, to this experience in which I am stricken with grief, with worry, God, bring the blessings of heaven down here to me on earth. I expect you to do that, Lord. Let's be faithful and expectant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, we want to learn from this wonderful story. A story right around the time of your son's birth. A story in which we're... a impressed and urged and encouraged to not just be faithful people, to not just do what we're supposed to do on a day-by-day basis, but to lift up our eyes and our hopes and our dreams to petition You for the impossible. To ask You that Thy kingdom in heaven would come down now to earth. God, I pray that we would be the mighty expectant ones. We know you want to bless us. 
We want to bless our, our children, our families this Christmas. We want to give them gifts. We're not too worried about um, how they've acted and responded in the past. We, we want to just bless them with gifts, with wonderful things that will bring them great delight. And God, you're not concerned with how we've acted in the past. You weren't even with Zacharias. You were determined to bless him. So now, God, we ask your blessing upon us. We're going to pray expectantly for the impossible. Bring heaven down to us on earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.